The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Guys, we don't do this kind of thing very often, but could you guys get up for my friend Megan, who's been up here singing with us this morning? Hey, um, <clears throat> for those of you, uh, <laughs> wow. For, for those of you that don't know Megan, we've got a lot of history with her and her family, and uh, her father is one of the most godly men that I've ever met in my life, Mark Scudstead, who's on staff at Edgewater Christian Fellowship in Grants Pass, and uh, every once in a while, we're able to lure Megan over here to hang out with us on a Sunday as she ministers over there in um, Grants Pass, but I, I, I mean, I, th- I think Medford's better than Grants Pass, don't you? I mean, like, I just think if you guys are, like, really nice to her. Her dad's really gracious. He'll forgive us. He has to. Hey, uh, turn to Galatians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let me say this too. And um, if you sit in the back, that's awesome. Sometimes even the sound, frankly, is better when you're further back in the sanctuary. But you are missing out. There is like when you guys can't hear it back there. I noticed because the back there waiting on something to drink because my cough and everything. And then when I came up, you could just hear everyone singing. So I'm just challenging you. You're missing out on something being up here in this area where you can hear all the voices. Right? Front row people, right? I'm just saying. Just saying. But um, Galatians chapter 2, if you do not have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high. <coughs> one of these guys will get one to you. Um, Especially because if my voice doesn't hold out, we might just read for a while. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, so you might need that. Um, I'm going to be trying as hard as I can to not make this completely unbearable for you guys by uh, sucking a little cough drop here and there. But um, this cough has been brutal. It's like three weeks now, and it just the tickle's worse today than it was before. I don't know. I probably need surgery. Um, Galatians chapter 2. And uh, let's review a little bit. They say repetition is the key to learning, and we do that a lot. We want to we understand the flow and the narrative of Scripture, what's going on, that these passages are not always independent. They build. Paul, in particular, has a tendency to build his arguments as he's going through. And so this is our third week in the book of Galatians. And what have we learned so far? Well, right out the gate in Galatians 1, we learned that there are how many Gospels? One. There is one Gospel. And that is that despite the fact that man created by God and designed to live in such a way that glorifies God, in perfect relationship with God, man has rebelled against God and fallen. And we are all sinful, wicked, selfish, building our own kingdoms, all of these things. This has been every single person on earth, well, except that one guy, every single person on earth, that's our story, that we've lived to worship self. And we've rebelled against God. But the gospel is that God, seeing the fact that we were depraved and had fallen away from him and were destined to an eternity apart from him, God intervened in human history. That God himself became flesh. Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect, sinless life. He did everything that we could not do and then went to the cross where on the cross the sins of all mankind and the wrath of God against that sin was poured out on the person of Jesus Christ as a substitute for us. And then Jesus was buried in the grave, dead, and on the third day rose again. He is now ascended into heaven. And to those who would put their faith and trust and belief in him, he offers by grace alone forgiveness of sins 
righteousness, admission into heaven, and we are adopted into the family of God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with what we do. has everything to do with what he has done. There is one gospel. But we've also learned that there are two ways in which we can tend to pervert the gospel, which is important for us to revisit again today in light of the text we're going to be in. One of them is through licentiousness. So the idea there is that we hear this gospel of grace and forgiveness. You mean Jesus will forgive every single thing that I do? Awesome. Then I'm just going to go do whatever I want. That's great. And, and it's, it's really a functional atheism with fire insurance. So, so that, be, that being, well, I'm saved and I get into heaven, so I'm going to keep that membership card in my back pocket. But until then, I can just do whatever I want, and I won't live in such a way that Jesus makes any difference in any area of my life anywhere. I'll keep living just like I lived before, and then I've got this membership card, and that, that's a functional atheism. It's living as if God does not exist. It's licentiousness. It's a false gospel. You are not saved when you're that person. Then there's a different perversion of the gospel that is, again, a false gospel. Paul, remember, argues there is one gospel. And so there's this other one, though, that is based not on I'll just do whatever I want, but it's this other version. It's Jesus saves by grace, but I also need to do, and there's all of these other things, whatever they may be, depending on who you are. Jesus plus this. This is the issue Paul's facing in Galatia. Because there's these Jews that have come in that are teaching the people that, yes, you're saved. Yes, the cross paid for your sins. And so belief in Christ. But don't forget, we still have this Mosaic law and all these practices. So you you got to have Jesus, but you got to have all this other stuff too. And people still do this to this day. It's a legalistic approach. It says, I'm saved because Jesus died for my sins and I give it church. Or and I read the Bible every day. Or, and I don't drink, or I don't watch those movies, or I don't, or whatever the case may be, that we start to begin to look at our behavior, at moralistic living, at the law in particular, as the reason for our salvation. And what you're really doing there is continuing to try to earn favor and grace from God. That's what this means. And so you have the licentious, I'll do whatever I want, I'll live this fleshy existence and I don't care what God's law says. Or you have the other side that says, I'm going to use God's law as a way of manipulating God and saying, see, I have earned your favor. Paul says, neither one of those are true gospels. But the beautiful thing is, as we saw last week, is that Paul is the poster boy for what the gospel, the true gospel can do in a life. Because Paul's both. On one end, he's the licentious. He was murdering Christians, literally. We, we talked about it last week, remember? It's not just that he was, we, oh, he was persecuting the church. Paul was persecuting the church. Well, we've heard that so much, and we know that Paul writes the New Testament. I think a lot of times in our minds, we sort of give him a pass. But, but in reality, Paul is a terrorist. Paul is murdering people because of his fanatical beliefs in his faith. That's terrorists. That's the guys that take planes and crash into buildings, so Paul was as wicked as it comes, murdering Christians, but Paul is also the legalistic example because it says he was more zealous for his faith than anyone else. And so he had this weird sort of self-righteous, I will break, I'm so passionate for the law of God that I will break the law of God by killing people who do not follow the law of God. 
it's weird and distorted and perverted, and that's pretty normal for someone who tries to live that sort of life, that self-righteousness that builds up where you're hyper-aware of everyone else's sins and not at all aware of your own. That was Paul. And so Paul's life itself is an example of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can break in. It can save the religious, self-righteous, stuck-up, fundamental, we don't want to be around that guy, never gets invited to Super Bowl parties, that guy. And it can, they're just not fun, right? <laughs> or it saves the licentious, I'll do whatever I want, no, no, just the worst of the worst, it saves him too. That's what Paul's gospel teaches us. And then one other thing, we talked about a lot of things last week, but one other thing that I can't but, but mention again this week is that not only does the gospel do this, not only does God save the lost and forgive sinners, but he takes pleasure in doing so. The word says that it pleased God to reveal his son to Paul <laughs> on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. And in our mind, I think often we think that Jesus showed up on that road to Damascus and was like, Paul, what are you doing? And was like angry and Paul just cowered in fear. But when you hear Paul tell the story, it sounds like Jesus might have had a smile on his face. I think that's beautiful. He's not, he's not looking at the people that he saves and goes, oh, man, I wish I'd have wrote those rules better. Somehow Jeff slipped in. But he's, he's going, no, it, del it brings joy to the heart of the king of all creation to save you. Yes, you. Megan, normally they would amen after something like that. I don't know what happened here, but when you go back to Grant's past, please don't tell them that that happened, okay? Anyway, that's what we learned. Now, let me give you some setup for chapter two as we're going to go in. If you are out and having conversations in your day with, and I hope that you are, with people that do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ, do not believe in Jesus Christ, are not followers of Jesus Christ, as you have interactions with them and talk with them about the gospel and about our Lord, you will tend to find some pretty typical skepticisms that will come back at you in a lot of those conversations. Things that are, for example, <coughs> <coughs> Some of the most common ones. Um, if there's a good and loving God, why does he allow bad things to happen? Has anyone ever heard that before? <coughs> there's quite a few. How about this one? Um, how can God be so loving and yet allow people to go to hell for eternity? Has anyone heard that one before? Um, how about this one? This is the easiest one. Church is just full of hypocrites. Yeah? That's the easiest one. You just go, yeah. You're right, biggest bunch of hypocrites to ever walk the earth. You would fit in perfectly. You should come hang out. You should just hang with us. Like that's just, it's just like you, you'll love it. <coughs> now, now here's the thing. This is what I want you guys to know about this. Because a, lo a lot of times when we talk with unbelievers and we start to talk about our faith and those skepticisms come at us, we can shift gears and go into sort of a, um, apologetics, um, not argument so much, but let's say win the debate mode, where we have to start answering these objections that are coming. And I think if that's our first initial move, sometimes I think that's a bad idea. And let me tell you why. I think I, I'm, I'm making this number up, but my guess would be nine out of 10 of the objections, the skepticisms that you will hear from people about the faith that come back at you, I would say probably nine out of 10 of those are actually based in real life experiences that they haven't learned how to reconcile and deal with yet. 
So for example, when someone says, why would a good God allow bad things to happen? Maybe that's a person who watched a dear loved one that in their eyes was an incredible, moral, loving, passionate, caring person, but watched them suffer for years with cancer before finally passing away. And so they watch that, and they see wicked prosper, and they see people who don't seem to deserve that having much better lives or maybe even being cured of cancer. And this person that was a saint to them dies and they don't know how to reconcile this thing. And then they're hearing Christians talk about this loving God that can heal the sick. And they go, I don't get it. If he's that loving, then why would my grandmother die? And why like that? Or, or maybe when someone says, Something about um, why would a good God allow someone to, to go to hell for all eternity? Sometimes there's someone that's that same kind of loved one that they may not be aware whether they had a relationship with God or not. And for them to process the fact that that loved one may not be with God, it's, it's hard. That's a barrier to get across. And I think when we talk with unbelievers and these skepticisms comes back, come back to us, if we instantly go into sort of like this truth debate sort of mode with people like that, um, I think we're making a big mistake because husbands, you should all know this. If you don't know this, write this down. You cannot answer feelings with facts, right? Not very effectively anyway. Look, people feel. And, and emotions are real. And, and sometimes even the things that they perceive cause that emotion might not even be real. A perception of truth might not even be real, but the thing they're going through feels pretty real when they're going through it. And so to jump right into debate mode and go, no, you're wrong. The reason that all these things happen is Genesis chapter 3, and if you know that, you're fine. And I mean, it, that's not going to deal with the heart, the root of the skepticism that's there. What a Christian should do is lovingly shepherd people through those sorts of issues. Love them, care for them, share your own doubts and fears. Because let's face it, we have all been through those seasons, amen? So you talk about that. Now, I said how many? I said nine out of ten, right? Now, one out of ten, or whatever the stats may truly be, one out of ten is not like that at all. One out of ten is not a seeker. One out of 10 just wants to tear down the faith and argue. And those exist as well. We've seen it throughout history, even in the Bible. In Jesus' day, you have the Pharisees. They're constantly coming to Jesus and asking all these questions, but their desire is not to get to know Jesus or learn anything about him. Their desire is to do what? To destroy him, to tear him down, to kill him. And so they'll ask these questions and he'll give these answers and they're like, shoot, all right, uh, uh, let's try something else. And they're constantly trying to trap him. What, what about that? I think it's interesting and telling, by the way, how Jesus interacts with them. Do you notice that he doesn't typically go point to point with them very often? And a lot of times, even his answers are almost, they're almost like riddles, parables, things like that, that he could have just completely revealed himself. This is who I am. Boom, miracle to try to prove who he is. But, but he didn't. He knew what was in their heart. And he wasn't interested in engaging that kind of heart. He, but to the seeker, to the woman at the well, he completely says, I'm the one you've been looking for. I think it's interesting how Jesus navigates those things, how he operates and how he 
commends himself to one and not the other. Even in the book of John, <coughs> in John chapter two, after the wedding feast at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine, Baptist fundamentalists don't like that passage, but Jesus turns water into wine, they have the big wedding party, word gets out, then they all get together at Passover, and at this Passover it says that there were crowds of people wanting to follow Jesus and wanting to see and wanting to believe in him because of the works he did. And then there's this interesting and surprising text right there where it says, but he would not commend himself to any of them because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew. They're not seekers. They're not really trying to find me or looking for answers. They heard I make good wine. <laughs> they heard I can heal someone's arm, whatever the case may be. And so he knew. And so Jesus, sometimes we get this in our mind that Jesus was just so, just talked so gently with everyone. But Jesus understood the heart of men. And he looked for those who sought. But, and he healed those who were sick and desperate for it. But he also walked past a lot of people. A lot of people. And it's good for us, especially in this day and age, to understand that there's a difference between those that are out there seeking that we need to go engage with the gospel and lovingly shepherd, and those whose only goal is to destroy this faith that has saved us. And we, and we should think about where we really want to spend our time. Does that make sense? Now, one of the ways that people like, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, <coughs> excuse me, have attempted to, um, let's say, disprove or discredit the faith of Jesus Christ, um, especially in, let's say, scholar or university settings at, in this particular day, um, is through this new argument that tries to compare the teachings and writings of some people in the New Testament with that of Jesus. Uh, the, the argument kind of goes something like this. They would say that Jesus, when he was here on the earth, he taught um, this beautiful, loving, forgiving, gracious Sermon on the Mount faith that was just warm hugs, daisies, and pixie dust, just love and acceptance and forgiveness for everyone, and that's what he taught his disciples, and so that's what his direct disciples taught. That's the teachings of Jesus Christ. Then this guy named Paul came along. And when Paul came along, he was Jewish background, Pharisee, really smart, educated guy, and he went a different direction with it, and he started teaching a different kind of Christianity that was really heavy in things like doctrine and dogma and all of that sort of stuff. It was more rigid, and Jesus just wanted everybody to just be cool, chill, and hang out. And then Paul came in with all this other stuff, and a rift developed. This is a, a true philosophy, that a rift then developed within the church, and Paul's Christianity won out. And so the faith that we see now in mainstream evangelical Christianity is Paul's Christianity. And the faith that we see in Jesus' writings from before, much more hippie, much more 60s, free love, that kind of stuff, that's what Christianity is really supposed to be. So we should stop worrying about things like doctrine and theology and just let's all, everybody, just be cool and hug and hang out, stuff like that. that that's a genuine belief. Well, this particular chapter addresses this issue. Is Paul's gospel and Paul's writings completely in line with that of Jesus Christ? There is a spider hanging on a spider web right here. That is, <sighs> here it comes. <sighs> Charlotte, anyway. Sorry, where were we? I hate spiders. Um, 
Uh, we'll edit all this out of the tape. So is, does Paul's gospel and Jesus' gospel match? Is there a divide between the two of them? These guys are going to be freaking out for the next half hour. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2 and actually read the Bible instead of listening to my foolishness. <laughs> Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul, for 14 years, goes throughout Gentile territory that's non-Jewish, outside of Israel. He's going into areas that are Greek influence and Roman influence and into Turkey, all these areas. He's teaching the gospel to people that do not have this Jewish background. For 14 years, preaching this gospel of grace apart from works, and people are being changed. People are being saved. And among these converts develops a group of Jews. They're in the minority, but they have a loud voice. That's usually how it works, isn't it? The minority has a way of having a loud voice when they have an objection. But that's how it goes. So here, here's Paul, 14 years, preaching the gospel. Lives are being changed all over the place. Great things are happening. And there's some Jewish people going, hey, wait a minute. You're not having them have to get circumcised. You're not having them go through the cleansing rituals. You're not having them go through all the different things that are aspects of the Jewish faith. Just Jesus without any of this? Are you kidding me, Paul? How can, you, how can you just throw away all of this stuff in the Old Testament? This is the foundation. This is written by God, Paul. What are you doing? And so this debate develops. And so after this, 14 years, Paul goes to Jerusalem. Now, he's not summoned to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Jerusalem because he's tired of this debate and wants to deal with it. Christ sends Paul to Jerusalem. That's important to understand. This debate that's going on, Christ, God wants to deal with once and for all because it's a big deal. It says right there in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Not because I got a letter or a summons, but I was told by God to go. So God, Paul goes to Jerusalem to go meet with the apostles, the pillars, or as he says, those who seem important or influential, the, the apostles themselves to talk about this issue of the faith. What is the gospel? What is required for someone to be saved? And so he goes up to Jerusalem and he takes two people with him. He takes Barnabas, who is a Jew, good, upstanding Jew, everyone would approve of him. And then he takes with him Titus, bacon eating, Greek, uncircumcised, pork rinds, barbecue sauce dripping down on his robe just Gentile Titus. That's who he takes. And he goes there into Jerusalem and he meets with the council of these elders, the Jewish council, the Jerusalem council there in Jerusalem. And Paul lays out this gospel that he's been preaching before them. And he's got with them Barnabas, who is a trusted Jew that they know, that they can, he can kind of testify, this is the things we're seeing, here's how the Holy Spirit is being given to the unbelievers and all of this stuff. And then he's also got with him now Titus, who has now been saved, but has not gone through any of the Jewish prerequisites, if you will, that these people see. And they have this entire debate. This debate is found, actually, in Acts chapter 15, if you ever want to go back and read it. But this council actually happens. And in it, I'm going to read just a section to you in Acts 15, verse 4. It says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. 
the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And then I love this verse, Acts 15, 10, he says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's a great verse. Peter finally makes this statement before everyone. Look, guys, they've been given the Holy Spirit just like we have. Look at Titus. Clearly this man has changed. He loves Jesus. Look at the ministry that's happening through him. This guy has clearly been regenerated by the resurrected Savior. Now, why in the world would you want to go back now and put this burden of the law on him, which, by the way, neither you nor we have ever been able to keep perfectly ourselves? And so in this, the gospel is upheld. It's Jesus, not law. It's Jesus and grace alone. God is clearly doing a work, and it's this important moment for the church, a pivotal moment for the church. But then look at verse 4 of Galatians 2. And yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now let's think about this for a minute. Paul says, but there were people coming in hearing and spying out this gospel message we're proclaiming to you and the reason they were, they were not seekers, they're not looking to learn. They wanted to bring into slavery, and so we will not budge an inch because we do not want you being brought back into a yoke of slavery. That's what Paul's saying in this text. So let's think about this. There are two arguments that still exist even today against preaching grace apart from the law. There's two main arguments that many of us in this room have wrestled with many different times about preaching the gospel of grace without going into also saying, and make sure that you, and then going into the law. The first deals with moral fears. And the idea is this, if we only preach grace, if we only preach the gospel of grace, and we don't also say, but yeah, you also have to, and start laying out law as well, then people will never change. They'll never become the kind of moral entity that they're supposed to be. They'll never live a life that glorifies God. They won't be moral beings because they're not being given the tools that they need to be able to live. They won't know not to covet because they've not been told. They won't know they have to honor mother and father because they have not been told. So we have to take this law and attach it. Otherwise, they will never, ever change. That's one of them. The second argument is really one more of just tradition and religion in general. And that is they would say, you, you can't ignore the law. It was written by God. It's holy and it's perfect. And so if we preach the gospel without also bringing the foundation to that to bear and giving both of them simultaneously, you're taking that which God used as the foundation for our entire faith and you're saying that doesn't play a part in our justification? How can you do that, Paul? And those arguments still exist today. 
Now, with that in mind, I want you to understand something, and this is really the main point of the entire teaching today, and it's this. The law, because it is holy and written by the holy God, who is the God, Lord, creator of everything, the law has every right to tell you and I exactly how we are to live. The law has every right to tell us that we are to live this kind of life. Don't sin, do glorify God, all of those things. The law has every right to do that, okay? But the law has no power whatsoever to deal with my failures to live up to that law. And let me lay it out like this. If you've bought a car in the last I don't know, 10, 15 years, at some point, odds are you've had the check engine light come on on your dashboard, right? Hands for check engine light issues before. So what do you do with that? You go to the dealership, you go to the mechanic, wherever it is, and what they do most of the time now, they don't pop the hood right away, do they? They bring out this cable, and they plug this cable into the car, and they turn on a computer, and that computer does a diagnostic scan through all the different systems and computer systems in your car. And what does it do? It tells you what's wrong with your car. We got Scott Morris right over here. He's a mechanic in our church. I had a problem with my wife's minivan. I have lots of problems with my wife's minivan. First of all, that it's a minivan. But beyond that, um, it, it was broken at one point, and, and we needed to have some work done. So Scott came over, and he had that diagnostic tool. He plugged it in, starts the van, turns on the thing, scans for a couple of seconds, and then tells you, here's what's wrong. The van's broken. This is what you need to get fixed. That's awesome, right? But now here's the thing. I don't care how many times you plug that machine back into that van and run that scan over and over and over and over and over. Listen, it's only going to tell you the same thing over and over and over. It's broken. It's broken. It's broken. It's broken. It will never fix what's broken. It's not designed to. If you go to the doctor if you've, God forbid, have cancer or, or maybe a knee injury or something like that and you go into the MRI machine, they're going to scan you and they're going to do a diagnostic scan that will show you here's the issue. Here's the tumor that's causing the problem. Here's the tear in your knee that needs to be fixed. But I don't care how many times you lay down on that MRI machine and you can be scanned over and over and over and over. It's only going to say the same thing over and over and over. It's broken. Something's wrong. It's broken. It's never going to fix the cancer. It's never going to fix the tear. Listen, the law... Is it good? Absolutely. Is it perfect? Absolutely. Is it holy? Absolutely. But it's a diagnostic. And the purpose of the law is to show us that we are broken and lost and sinful and wicked and sick and in need of a physician. But the law itself is no physician. There is no power in that to change anything. The law is simply a diagnostic. Do you guys see this? This is really important that you understand this because this next step depends on that, okay? The law has no ability to heal you. Only Christ heals. And, and here's the thing. You want to know why so many of you and so many other Christians struggle with joy in their life? Because you keep going back to the scan. You just keep going back to the diagnostic over and over and over. And what's it telling you over and over and over? 
You're broken. You're broken. You can't do it. You're broken. You're broken. Well, no wonder there's no joy in your life. It's the only voice you're taking in. And the purpose of the law was only to point you to the actual person that heals, Jesus. That's the purpose. Jesus is the balm of Gilead. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus is our healer. Jesus is our salvation, not the law. And so you take this thing, compared to the law, you will never, ever, ever measure up. And so if you continue to go back to the law, continue to go back to all the do's and don'ts and try to measure your worth based on that, you will never feel in any way like you deserve the grace, mercy, and peace that Jesus Christ provides for you. And you will never, ever, ever feel and know the joy of gospel resurrection in your own heart. Because the only voice you're ever hearing is constantly condemning you. But, but now, check this out. When Christ comes into your life and he dwells in you, Christ then becomes the diagnostic. You're going to wait, I don't, that don't make sense. This is what I mean by that. Look, because when God looks at you, when God, if you will, scans the life of Jeff Hensley or scans the life of whoever in this room, he's not looking at you. He's looking at who? He's looking at the life of Jesus Christ who lived perfectly, the righteousness of Christ that was imputed into you. It's the age-old example. It's been done so many times I didn't even want to do it today, but I really can't think of another one that's better. It's like you could take this dollar bill, this is all the money I own in the world, and um, it can be just tattered and wrinkled up and, hey, Don, is it still a felony to destroy money? It is, so I can't tear it. I would tear it. Pretend I I tore it. I mean, it's just bad, just destroyed, it's wrinkled, it's torn, it's not perfect, but once it's placed inside the scriptures and you look at it now, you don't see the tears anymore, do you? And you don't see the wounds anymore, it's just completely hidden. And in the same way, when Christ comes into a life and you've been regenerated in Christ, he doesn't see the failure anymore. The diagnostic that God puts on our life when he calls us righteous, he's looking at Christ, not you. And so think about the folly in that. Like we constantly go back to our own diagnostic, looking at our own life to try to go, man, have I earned God's favor? Should I feel good as a Christian or should I feel horrible as a Christian? And we're constantly looking at ourselves and God doesn't do that at all. He looks at who? Christ. And so for many of us, we have no joy whatsoever because we keep trying to plug that cable into our own car. And it's not what Christ does. Now, now understand, Once this happens, when you get to that point that you understand the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and you're not constantly being burdened under the condemning voice of the law that is over and over and over telling you that you can't live up to it, look, that's when you get freed up to pursue Jesus. Because until that point, you have been told over and over by that diagnostic that you're not good enough to come into his presence in the first place. So you keep telling yourself that I can't worship because I've done this, and I can't go read the Bible because I've done that, and I can't do any of this. What I need to do is be really good for a while, and then I'll feel worthy of actually standing in church and putting my arms up or or praying, but, but I can't go before God right now. He knows what I did, and I'll just feel like a hypocrite. Anybody ever felt that before? You're going to the diagnostic. You're running to the law. 
and you're trying to, to look at some imaginary scales to see if you measure up, if you have the ability to come before God, and no such scales exist. I'll make it really easy for you. I don't care if it's the day when you're nailing it or the worst day you've ever had. You in yourself have nothing in you that allows you the value or, or, or that you, makes you deserve to be able to come before the presence of the perfect and holy God. There is nothing in you that will ever bring you that kind of confidence. Nothing. But in Jesus Christ, there is nothing in us that can keep us from coming to the presence of God. Say amen to that time, Megan. Not as loud as I would like, but it's, it's early, kind of. That's just the truth, right? That is the truth. This is the gospel. The reason so many people don't pray and read their Bibles the way they don't is because they're just constantly listening to that diagnostic that says, I can't go before God. I need to clean myself up a little bit first. And the only thing that cleans us is the blood of Jesus Christ. I can remember growing up when communion would be passed, thinking through my week and thinking, I can't have communion today because I did that last night and I haven't apologized for it yet. And so I gotta do something to clean myself up before I can come to the altar. When in reality, it's at the altar that we find forgiveness and hope and cleansing right there. That's the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that voice that says you can't just teach your kids about the gospel and grace, you've got to pound that law into them too. Don't believe it. And be careful. Because you can build a legalistic mindset even in a child that prevents them from coming into the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And God is not disappointed in you. And you think, Jeff, it just won't work that way because if I, if I only do the grace that they're never gonna, it's not gonna happen, that's never gonna cause them to repent because they'll never feel guilt. But what does Romans say? That it's the kindness of God that leads to what? Repentance. It's when you understand the grace and mercy of God, that's what motivates change in people's lives, not condemnation, not law. All that's gonna do is try to make us fix ourselves. And it, it, God forbid if we actually pull it off, and this is where Paul says, I don't want people becoming a prisoner again. It's one of two things is gonna happen. They're either gonna get that false gospel that says I can go do whatever I want and they'll still be enslaved to sin even though Jesus doesn't want that for them. Or you end up going the legalistic route <coughs> where you're still trying to constantly fight to earn favor that God has already freely given and you'll never have joy, you're never gonna have peace, or if you actually pull some of it off better than others, then worse, you become a total self-righteous jerk. And everyone else becomes your diagnostic then, right? You start going, well, I'm good because I'm not like them. By the way, they never get invited to Super Bowl parties. <laughs> Same. If you didn't get an invite, you might. No, <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I blame the cough medicine. So to go at our faith in any other way results in slavery. And Paul's saying, I will not budge from this gospel of grace. I will not budge from this gospel of grace. There's too much at stake. I'm not willing, because he could have just said, all right, fine. We'll just let them get circumcised too. Which, of course, they would have responded like, what? But I mean, he could have he just said, uh, okay, we'll do some of this to appease you and make everybody happy. No, Paul says, I will not budge. There is too much at stake, and I will not watch people drift back into slavery, because that's our bent. We'll just drift right back into it. And then Paul goes on, and he says this in verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, that, that Paul's gonna sound like a jerk right now, but listen to this. 
And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. <laughs> Paul, I don't think you needed that, bro. Like, <laughs> we're okay. The gospel was upheld. Everybody's good. You didn't need to call them those who seem influential, and they added nothing to me. And uh, look, Paul's fired up when he writes this. God does work through the personality of the authors as he writes, and Paul is clearly passionate as he writes Galatians. But what Paul is saying here is simply, Paul, why you gotta be so rude? Sorry. Um, what Paul's really saying is that there's something bigger than the apostles. That's what he's saying. Look, all glory goes to God. No glory goes to man. And, and let me, as the pastor, say that about me as well, please. And anyone, if, if you should ever see anything happen on stage that looks in any way cool or holy or amazing, just forget it completely and understand that everything good that happens is at the mercy and grace of the Holy Spirit and God himself. Every one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we do, we are clay vessels. That's it. We are all clay pots. And to put glory and, and to praise man above God is idolatry and it's wrong and it's putting hope in something that doesn't deserve it. No one bows to the servant when the king walks in the room. Amen? This is what Paul is saying. And he goes on in verse seven, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been trusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So he's saying, I was given the gospel to go to the Gentile people. Peter was given the gospel, the mission to take the gospel into the Jewish people, to the circumcised people. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So as they come together, they, they look at the fruit of Paul's ministry. They hear the gospel laid out that Paul presents. They see the testimony of Titus and Barnabas and the lives change. And they extend this right hand of fellowship and they say, this message is the same. His gospel is true. We are the same family. They are all the same. The fight is over. But notice something. Paul is given the gospel to go where? to the Gentiles. Peter is given the gospel to go where? To the Jews. Same message, different context. I, I, this is a beautiful thing. We see this all the time. Pastor Brent is in here with us. Pastor's our children's ministry. We hired him this year from good old North Carolina. We're slowly trying to take over down here, just so you know. And uh, so we hired Brent from North Carolina. And when he was here interviewing for the job and all that stuff, we flew him out here for a weekend. He actually taught your kids so we could kind of see how he teaches and all this stuff. And then um, on the day that, that he was about to leave, my wife and I took him and his wife out to dinner to actually give him the job offer. We wanted even then for them to go home feeling good about all of this. And, and we, so we put a contract together and we gave him the job offer at lunch in Ashland at Standing Stone Brewing Company. Now, if you're from Asheville, or excuse me, if you're from North Carolina, I assure you, there are no pastor's gatherings taking place at any sort of brewing company, restaurant, anything like that. Bible Belt, Southern, Christian, conservative territory, no way. I, I, you're lucky if it's in a coffee shop, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a completely different context. And I can remember even when he was coming out here to be at church that weekend, he, he contacted me and he said, hey, uh, my wife was wondering, could you, could you give us a heads up on what people wear at church? 
And I was like, clothes? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> but I had forgotten because I used to live there. It was ties every Sunday and, and women, man, you were wearing like fancy dresses. It was like Easter every single week. And that's the culture that they're in. Now, is the message different? No. And, and that's what's beautiful about that is that, that I can preach the gospel here and then in the next year, hopefully, go to Africa, and I'm still going to preach the same gospel. Because it's, there's, only, there's only one gospel. There's only one gospel. And it doesn't matter what cultural context you're a part of, God still saves through that same exact gospel. And that is a beautiful thing. Amen? And finally, in closing, let's bring this down in verse 10. He says, and only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. Now, at this time in the world, there was a massive famine that had caused a lot of death. There had been wars that affected the church. There was persecution that had affected the church in a lot of different areas. There were some really difficult times that had gone down with regards to the church in that time. And what Paul and the other apostles want us all to have is an idea of the church that's bigger than these four walls here on Chevy Way in Medford, Oregon. Amen? The church is bigger than this. Now, I am charged as the pastor, and the elders here are charged with a certain level of stewardship over this specific flock. And so whether it be the finances, pastoral care, all of those things, we are charged with a certain measure of responsibility here. But the boundaries of that responsibility do not end at this building and that office. We need to have a bigger view of the gospel and a bigger idea of the kingdom of God than just this room. And so even just this week, I got together with John Adams, who's the elder um, in charge of financial oversight, and we got together late in the game for sure, John, but we did. We got together and put this year's budget together, made some adjustments after last year's, and, and we will hopefully this week be presenting it to the rest of the elders, and if they vote and approve it, it'll be instituted and we're good to go. We started that out before looking at anything like salaries or, or any of that stuff. We started out like, okay, how much money are we going to give away this year? And we just started going through. How much do we want to give away to parachurch organizations in our community? How much do we want to give away to Africa? How much do we want to give away to benevolence ministries to be able to address needs of the people in the church? And we took all of that and set that all aside before we ever even got to working on anything like that. And I, I can tell you guys with confidence, assuming, sorry elders, I hope I'm not overstepping bounds, uh, assuming that budget does get passed, we as a church will give away nearly $100,000 this year, just, just giving it away to minister to needs around us. No, 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 don't clap, don't clap for that. That's not why I'm, I'm sorry, thank you, but that's not why I'm doing that. I just want you to know that, that we believe that the needs and the ministry of this church, we, we have to invest in more than just this room. And I think it's an honor to be a part of a church that's building a church building in Africa before we have a church building here in America. Isn't that good? And by the way, I have pictures, I thought of it this morning, like how did I not bring these pictures with me today, but the walls are going up. I mean, the kingdom of God is so much, just this week, I had lunch on Wednesday with the pastors that were part of the round table that we had from First Baptist and Westminster Presbyterian and Rogue Valley Fellowship. Then on Thursday, I got together and I had lunch with Jim Wright from Mountain Christian Fellowship and got to talk with him about the things they're facing right now and pray with him. And then on Friday, I ended up getting to do a phone interview for a school project that I'm working on at Western Seminary with Pete Slusher, the pastor of Community Bible Church over there. And he said the nicest thing to me in the world. Um, he, he said, you know what, man? I am so glad. He goes, I want you to know something. You've made a huge impact on my ministry in the last few years. And I was like, 
why? Is everyone leaving Heritage to go to you? Is that what it is? He, he, said, he said, until I met you, I spent almost my entire ministry having no relationship with any other pastors anywhere in the community. And he said, and since you and I got to know each other, I've now developed relationships with all these other pastors, and I'm just discovering what a big kingdom we're a part of, and it has brought a new joy to ministry for me. And so when he's out of town this weekend, when he gets back in town, we're going to sit together and plan, and we're going to do either like a sunrise or a Good Friday service with their church this year over Easter weekend. Those are good things, because we are part of a kingdom that is infinitely bigger than just here. So Heritage, as you're leaving here, be kingdom-minded. God is huge, and he's working in huge ways, and he works in those huge ways in the context you're in through you. Bunch of Gentile bacon eating. <laughs> Amen for some bacon. But let me say this too, and we're closing now. We're going to close in song. You guys can come on up. Let me say this too. <clears throat> Heritage, do not budge one inch from the gospel of grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. It's not worth it. Don't drift into legalism. Don't become self-righteous. Don't keep going to the diagnostic looking for your faith or for your value. Don't budge an inch from the reality that you bring nothing to the table for your salvation. Our salvation is completely placed upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ and his gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the grace and mercy he gives us. Do not budge from that. And don't fall into slavery, be it legalism or licentiousness. Don't do it. And if you're in this place right now and you are in slavery to one of those things, if you're saying, I have not experienced the kind of freedom and joy that you're talking about, then listen, today's the day. Like, why are you here today? Well, because someone drugged me. All right, but you're here. And I believe that that has eternal significance. I don't believe God does things by accident. You're here. And today, the gospel of free grace has been proclaimed and presented to you from the scriptures themselves. Not so much me, but what God has said from his holy word. And he wants you to be free and to have joy, forgiveness, and salvation. So we're going to close with a hymn, one of my favorites, that really just declares everything that I've just said in song. I pray that as we sing this, we would even be moved as we understand the reality of what God has done for us. But if you're here and you have not experienced that freedom, or maybe you've been saved, but you've drifted back into that and you want prayer, there's gonna be some men and women available back there in the back that would love to meet with you because today is significant for you, much bigger than just some football game. You can leave this place with joy. You can leave this place with peace. You can leave this place and finally be free. Amen? Don't miss this chance. Will you stand with me? Let's sing. Before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives in please for me. Strong and perfectly, 
Perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. God, we give you all praise, glory, and honor for you are worthy. 
You're our Savior, our King, our Shepherd, our God, our great physician, and our healer. And Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you guys feel good to be free this morning? Yeah? All right. All right. Then go. Do not look at the diagnostic. Look not within for evidence of your salvation, but look to the author and the finisher of your faith, Jesus Christ. And have a great week. I love you guys. Have a great week. God bless.